The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This evening we have a guest speaker, Reverend Kevin Sheehan comes from just up the street at uh, Reformed Church Ephrata. He's uh, working alongside Tom Nicholas. Uh, I actually don't know Kevin very well. I've had a couple opportunities to uh, hear him. Uh, When he did his examinations before Presbytery, he knocked it out of the park and impressed everybody. Um, He is a gifted teacher, and so you all are in for a real treat. There is a couple things that I count against him. He is from Boston and a a Boston fan, but I'm sure our our former senior pastor wouldn't hold that against him. So please give a warm welcome to Kevin Sheehan. Thank you, David. Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 40. It's a real delight to be with you this evening, and it's always a privilege to open up the Word of God and proclaim it. As David said, I'm the assistant pastor just up the street in Ephrata. The, our, my pastor, Tom Nicholas, will be here next month, so please come next month and say some really nice things about me to him. <laughs> and thank you for letting them know that I'm from Boston. It's good to just confess your sins right out of the gate, get that out of the way. Psalm 40, to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go after to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. 
O Lord, make haste to help me. Let lows be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let lows be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let lows be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, as we open up your word this evening, we are so grateful that you've given us this word. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would be among us, working to make your word clear, giving us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth and it would change us, change our, change our hearts and our minds, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most, if not all of us in this room, I presume, would agree that this is the word of God and that God has given us these words as we read them. One of the things that we often forget, though, is that God also arranged the Psalms in the order in which we find them. It's no mistake that Psalm 40 comes after Psalm 39. And often the Psalms are arranged in such a way that you see common themes that work throughout consecutive Psalms. Psalms 37, 38, and 39 express longing and waiting, but without result. Psalm 37, verse 34, he says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherited land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Psalm 38 ends with these verses. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 39, verses 7 and 8. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. And it ends with, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The psalmist expressing deep longing, but without results. But then we get to Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. This summarizes all the psalms that have gone before. I've waited patiently for the Lord. But here's the payoff. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And so finally, at last, the psalmist can say, yes, indeed, the Lord has heard me, and he has indeed rescued me. That's the context of our psalm. Let's go and let's take a closer look then at Psalm 40, beginning right at verse 1. I waited patiently. I waited patiently sounds like something you say when you're at the doctor's office, twiddling your thumbs, reading a magazine, or at the deli waiting for your number to be called. In the Hebrew, the word is much more emphatic. This waiting patiently involved crying out to God. It involved groaning. Help did not come quickly. This is long-suffering. 
This is hard. And let's just admit for a moment that in our culture, in our time and place, waiting is hard for us. We don't like it. Some of you remember the so-called TV generation. And then it became the MTV generation. And now it's the YouTube generation. I remember sermons 20 years ago that said, you know, the reason waiting is hard for us is because we're the microwave generation. Now we're the high-speed wireless internet generation. If it takes me more than 15 seconds to get out my phone and look it up, eh, not worth it. We've gone from snail mail to email to texting. We hate to delay gratification. And every advertisement that you see tells you the same thing. Every advertisement you see tells us not to wait, but get it now. Buy that car now. Buy that bigger house now. Take that vacation now. Retire now so you can buy those golf clubs now. The prosperity gospel tells us the same thing. The problem with the prosperity gospel isn't that it wants us to be blessed and happy. Is that it wants us to have the crown without the cross. But Jesus says, take up your cross. And the psalmist says, I waited patiently. Waiting is a part of life. It's one of those timeless principles that has existed since Genesis. One of the great themes of the story of Scripture is God's people waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. Israel was in Egypt crying out to the Lord for a long time. Abraham, Moses, David, all the saints of Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak less make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Yes, the people of God wait. We have God's blessing now, but the greater blessing is still yet to come. Even the last words of our Bible, John cries out, Come, Lord Jesus. And that cry has echoed through the centuries. But Psalm 40 verse 1 tells us that at the long road of waiting is the mercy of God where he inclines to us and hears our cry. In verse 2, he gets more specific. He drew me out. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. We don't know exactly what David was going through when he wrote this psalm. We can speculate. We can look back at his life. And we can speculate, but it really won't do us much good. Nor will it help us to compare trials and figure out, okay, who has it the worst in here tonight? You may recall about a month or so ago, we had some pretty vicious storms that have come through. And one of those storms, Sunday night, a couple of weeks ago, knocked out a pretty good-sized maple tree on our land. 
just missed the house, took out the wires, spent the next Saturday with my neighbor taking the rest of the tree down before it fell on the house. About a week or so later, you may recall, a series of tornadoes ripped through Dayton, Ohio. My wife is from Dayton, Ohio. Spent a couple hours trying to make sure everyone was okay. As it turns out, my wife's cousin Shirley heard of the bad weather coming, decided to go into her storm cellar, was halfway down the stairs, said, you know what, I should get my flashlight. And she said, yeah, I got my phone on me, that's got a flashlight. So she turned around to go back down the stairs, and as she did so, all the windows in her house exploded, and the wind threw her to the bottom of the stairs in her basement, and it blew the staircase on top of her. And she looked up a minute later, and all she could see were the stars because her house was completely gone. And so were her barns and the rest of the farm. The only thing she has left are the clothes that were in the dryer in the basement. But God kept her safe through that. It's tempting for us to compare trials and say, well, we don't have it as bad as Cousin Shirley, so we can't really complain about our little maple tree issue. But that's not how it works with God. There's no need to feel as though God cares less about your problems just because they're not as dramatic as someone going through cancer or abuse. And it's the devil's lie to you to say that God doesn't care. We all go through difficulties. Some of them feel like a pit of destruction. Some of them feel like a miry bog. If it's not small to you, it's not small to God. He cares the big trials, the little trials. He cares about all of them because you care about all of them. David says, He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That's what the Lord does, is that he rescues us and then he gives us stability, even in the midst of the storm. He goes on, he gives us another thing. David says, He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. The Lord gives us a song of praise. Doesn't he? All of us can sing or speak of the Lord's goodness to us in some way. And he's brought us through some trial, some difficulty. David says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Our story, our song results in many putting their trust in the Lord. Notice the content of David's song in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go after, to go astray after a lie. He is trustworthy. That's who he is. That's who God is. He's trustworthy, David says. And in verse 5, you had multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. He has done immeasurable good. That's what he does. We can trust him for who he is. We can praise him for what he's done. That's David's song. That's David's testimony. And he simply tells his story. I grew up with a guy named Dan. Dan was a good friend of mine. Dan's probably one of the smartest people I ever met. Extremely knowledgeable about everything you could think of. Also extremely skeptical when it came to matters of faith. 
I went off to college, became a Christian myself, and met another friend named Matt. Matt was a Christian. Matt's one of the wisest people I've ever met. And one time the three of us were having a conversation together. It was mostly Matt and Dan. I was mostly just sort of watching. Talking about the faith. And Matt would give some defense for the faith. And Dan would always have a rebuttal. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? Eventually Matt just said, look, when I was in junior high school, I was a bitter young man. I met the Lord. My life ever since has been full of joy. And Matt and I were talking afterwards, and he said, did you notice that was the one time Dan didn't have a rebuttal? Because what could he possibly say? Oh, no, you weren't. (laughs) Well, Well, yes, I was. A personal testimony is the one irrefutable evangelistic tactic we have. No one can deny your story because it's your story. Be sure not to overlook that when you think of talking to your unbelieving family members and neighbors and co-workers. Simply tell your story. Simply tell what God has done for you. That's what David does. God's goodness requires some response from us. Worship, praise, evangelism, something. But it moves us. But now David turns his attention to something even better than the particular trial from which God has rescued him. He turns his attention to a a greater rescue. In verse 6, he says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now stop for a moment and think about this. King David, a leader of the Israelites, is saying that God does not delight in sacrifice and that God does not require offerings. If we know anything about them, that was the center of their life. Their religious system revolved around offerings and sacrifices. And David says, well, actually, God doesn't really care for those. In fact, you don't even have to do them. That's a crazy verse coming from King David. David understands something of God's heart here. He does not fully understand it because David does not have the full revelation that we do. But he understood that the law and the sacrificial system were not ultimate. They were not ultimate. The prophet Jeremiah says the same. It's the Lord speaking through him. Jeremiah 7.22, he says, The Lord says, From the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, wait a minute. What happened when the Israelites got out of Egypt? What did God give them? The law. So what is he talking about? Verse 23, Jeremiah 7, But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Yes, in a literal, technical sense, God did command them sacrifices and offerings. But he's saying, look, that's not really what I'm after here. What I'm really after here is in a relationship with you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I'm just asking you to obey. 
That's what David has an inkling of, but does not quite fully understand. Verses 7 and 8 are also rather strange verses. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. Who is talking here? Our Bibles have punctuation, which try to help us in that. But who is speaking here? Is it David? Is it somebody else? And the answer to that is in Hebrews chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start sorting all of this out. Hebrews 10 verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, let's just stop right there. The law is but a shadow. It's not the form. David understands this. David doesn't know what the form is, but he understands that the law is just a shadow and there's something greater out there. Continuing in Hebrews, the law being a shadow, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What he's saying is the sacrificial system set up in the book of Leviticus is insufficient. It's insufficient to take away your sins. It was always meant to point us to a greater reality, a greater form of which the law was but a shadow. That's why God can say, you know, I wasn't really asking you about sacrifices and offerings. I was asking you about something much greater. Hebrews 10 verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, and now we're going to quote the psalm, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus himself takes on the words of Psalm 40 and says, that's me. That's me that the psalmist was talking about. Those are my words. And then... He says exactly what he means. He explains everything for us in verses 8 and 9. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. What does this all mean? This is what it means. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus does away with the old sacrificial system. Because he's bringing in a new system, a new way of doing religion, a new way of being right with God. It's not Leviticus, it's Jesus himself. Old system is obsolete. Spurgeon said, Christ made the sacrificial system obsolete like the sun does a candle. The sun comes out, you put away the candles. You think about the shadow of a tree. It tells you something about the tree. It tells you that there is one. But you can't climb the shadow of a tree. Not going to fall on your house either. You can't chop it down for firewood. You can't enjoy its leaves in the fall. You need the actual tree 
You need the form to do those things. You see the shadow of a person. You can't go and hug the shadow. You can't talk to the shadow. You can try. You'll look silly. You can't give it a high five. You can't talk to it. So you need the form of the person, himself or herself. And the sacrificial system can't take away sin because it's just a shadow. Christ is the form. Christ is eternal and ultimate, unlike the bulls and the goats. So his sacrifice of his blood is eternal and ultimate and can atone and do away with all our sin. We don't have to do it year after year after year because Christ has done it once and for all. And then in Hebrews 10.10, he says, And by that will we have been sanctified the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So there's a new way to obey. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through resting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Lord not only rescues us from the pit and the mire of sin, but also sets us securely on the rock of ages of Christ the foundation of our faith who is unmovable, unshakable. Matthew Henry says, Christ is the rock on which a poor soul may stand fast and on whose mediation alone between us and God we can build any solid hopes or satisfaction. David didn't know all of that, but he knew some of it. But all that David did know, he sang. Back in Psalm 40, Verse 9, he says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Even without perfect understanding, he spoke of God's character. He didn't hide the good news. He proclaimed it far and wide. He didn't understand everything, but he knew God's character and he trusted him. In verses 11 through 17, some people think we're actually a separate psalm at one point because it's quite a difference between the first 10 verses. It's an interesting order. We have the thanksgiving part of the psalm first, and then we have in the last seven verses a lament. A lot of psalms have both thanksgiving and lament, but usually the order is the other way around. I lamented, like God came to me, and now I am thankful. This is a different order. The psalmist establishes his trust in the Lord in the first ten verses, and then in verse 11, cries out for help. But David remembers the goodness of the Lord. In 11 through 17, you see at both ends, at the beginning and the end, Verses 11 and 17, he bookends this lament with remembering God's mercy. He says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then he goes into all the evils and all the hardships before he ends again with, You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. You see, these new trials that come David's way, they don't lead David to doubt God's character. But instead, God's character leads David to, per- to persevere through the trials. All the more so for us. We have the New Testament. We have the story of Jesus. 
and all the passages in the New Testament explaining God's amazing love and faithfulness to us. If David could rely on God's character, all the more so can we. And we can look at trials and say, we know God has this under control and he will see me through. See, we live in the tension between trusting and waiting. We know the Lord rescues, and yet we know we still need rescuing. We know the Lord provides, and yet we still have needs. And in this life, there will always be further needs, further desires, further trials and suffering ahead of us. But we can trust God with the little things along the way because we can trust God with the big things along the way. We can trust that Jesus came, that Jesus rescued us from sin, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus reigns supreme, that our time on earth is coming quickly to an end. And we will live in eternity with resurrected, glorified bodies without hint of sin or suffering, with no tears or pain or loss or sadness. Nothing but unending peace and joy and comfort. So does God care about your trivial little daily discomforts? Yeah, you bet he does. He cares about every hair on your head. Some of you are thinking, I don't have that many left. But he cares for the sparrows and the lilies. He cares for you. He may or may not address our needs the way we would like. But he is preparing a land of glory for us. And he is preparing us for a land of glory. Let's pray together. Oh, our great God and Savior, you are faithful to David, you are faithful to us. We can cast our cares upon you. You can bear them. You can take them. Not only can you take them, but you can use them for our good. Help us to face our daily trials, the little ones and the big ones, with faith that you care, with faith that you are active and listening. And if it seems we are waiting a long time, it is only because you have great things in store for us. And you delight to show us mercy. We thank you, O Lord, that Jesus has come and paid the once-for-all sacrifice for our sin that we have only good things before us. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.